This week we have Jesse Cook on the podcast. You know him as a great guitarist. He also is a phenomenal engineer and producer. He's been traveling all over the world and uh, he's a great ambassador to this country. And we had a great conversation. I'm sure you're going to love this conversation with Jesse Cook. Also, don't forget about our sponsors. First of all, Stickman Clothing Company based out of Regina. And uh, they're fantastic folks that run this company and they have some great clothing wear. Make sure you go check them out at stickmanclothingcompany.com. Also, Music City Canada, based in London, a great music shop, and they uh, have a great website. You can go to check out all the great deals there, musiccitycanada.com. Also, Morning Buzz Coffee, based out of Hamilton, Ontario. They will ship right to your door. They have amazing coffee, owned by two incredible musicians. Uh, Support them at morningbuzzcoffee.buzz. Also, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, make sure you do that. If you're listening to uh, iTunes or you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And to get all the links, just go to getmypodcast.com. All right, please enjoy Jesse Cook. Okay, we're here on the podcast with Jesse Cook. Nice to have you on here. And uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're one of these guys. I, I've I've done a, co- a couple corporate gigs years ago where you were playing. I was doing something, I think, with Jim Witter with a piano man show or Jim okay. somehow, um, but never really crossed paths. Uh, but certainly, uh, I can't really go to. Uh, a theater almost anywhere, especially across Canada, that without seeing that you're on the schedule at some point. <laughs> I tour a lot, or I toured a lot lately. I, I, this year has been the first year in the last 25 years where I wasn't on the road most of the time. You know, we were doing uh, upwards of 100 shows a year for I don't know how long, forever. I mean, it started yeah. in 95. I got my first record deal in 95 and started touring. And it just each year it seems to get more and more you know as we tour further and further afield you know at first it was more it was uh you know mostly canada a little bit of the u.s now it's mostly the u.s and a little bit of canada and and then we're you know touring in asia and europe and everything and then of course a year ago february uh it all kind of came crashing to a halt was that your last show in february last year yeah, we were actually we're in Europe, and we I remember we were sitting in a hotel lobby, going, "Wow, you know, we're reading the news, going, yeah, I wonder if this is going to affect our Canadian tour." And I, I remember my manager at the time sort of said, "No, no, 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 not to worry." <laughs> Two weeks later, the tour was canceled, and yeah. you know, the rest is history. But, uh, but I have to say, you know, one door closes and another door opens, and in my case, it's kind of uh, it's given me a year I never would have had. Like I, my kids are still kids you know they're teenagers at this point but you know i've only got a few more years before they grow up and leave and i realized at the rate i was going with the touring and everything i wasn't going to get to spend that much time it was more like holidays and things whereas this has been a a solid year of you know really just the family together and i love it i really i do i i feel bad saying that covid you know is is in in any way good but if there's a silver lining for me it was that i got to spend a year with my with my family and it's been great yeah, it's, it's been interesting because I've pretty much almost everyone I've asked or been on the podcast basically had the same reaction as you did where they've enjoyed this time. Um, it's been something they didn't expect and were able to do things they haven't done before, spend time with with family and, and you know, 
make sure the lawn looks good <laughs> and all those things that, yeah, yeah. you know, you don't have a chance to do as much. Um, and it's very rare that I've heard anyone uh, unhappy about it. Uh, mind well, you. It doesn't touch you. I mean, if, it, yeah. you know, if there's somebody in my family got sick and, or, you know, God forbid died of it. Yeah. It would be a very different experience and yeah. there are people dying of it. So that's why I feel bad even saying it, you know, because I realize it does touch some people, but I, I feel lucky we, Somehow it, it didn't really come into our lives. And, yeah. you know, the person I was mostly worried about was my mother, who's mm-hmm. 85. And, and uh, you know, she got her first shot about a week ago. So, you know, I think we may be uh, through the worst of it. So, sorry, I cut you off there. What were you going to say? No, no, I I agree. And my mom, too, same thing. She's uh, 80 and, and just got her first shot. And that's, that's the thing, right? You worry about uh, those people. But then you, you start seeing there's a lot of people our age that are having complications with it. It's just still something you just don't want to get um, at any age. And, uh, but yeah, the music industry, it's been, it's been interesting. I think it's been worse, obviously for uh, your gigging musicians and your technicians and um, those uh, people in that field who, who rely on that, those gigs to happen and a lot of those people have gotten other jobs um Mm -hmm. it's going to be interesting when things start rolling again how easy of a transition it's going to be i think for some it's going to be fine but some others it's going to be a difficult upswing and up transition especially for the really big shows when you're going out with 60 people or something and and half your crew you know are I've got regular gigs with a regular paycheck, <laughs> yeah. with a pension and and yeah. healthcare and all that stuff. And they say, oh, this actually looks pretty good. Well, that's exactly what happened to us. I think our um, our sound man, you know, at first was kind of, what am I going to do? And, and he was living on those CRB checks. And uh, and then, you know, he just didn't want to take money from the government. He got a job um, and, uh, you know, still in the music industry, but in a part that's not touring and doing shows. And, you know, I think at first he thought it was just going to be something that he, he just did until we go back on the road again, but he actually found he liked it. So now he's, last time I talked to him, he's, I said, you know, are you, are you going to want to go back on the road when this is all over? And he's like, you know what? I'm sitting on the fence. I'm not sure. And I, I get it. Right. I mean, yeah. I think for people who are road dogs, uh, it's hard because we, you know, we love it. We love to go out and tour and do shows and be part of that big experience. But there's always this bittersweet thing where you have to leave your loved ones behind to go and do that. You kind of go out with a bunch of guys that, you know, become your family on the road. But but your real family, you know, you don't see. And, and, and it's hard. It's a hard choice to make. And I think everybody I know who, who tours for a living kind of has to wrestle with that a little bit. And for some of us, maybe this whole experience will have changed the you know, where you sit on that issue and how much you, you really want to go out and tour. You know, it, it's kind of given everybody a sense of, you know, another alternative lifestyle you could possibly live, right? Yeah. And I think we all think that we we don't want to be off the road to some extent. And we've never had an extended period for that long. It's almost mm-hmm. like you're weaning yourself off it. At first, it's mm-hmm. like, I can't wait to get back out. And then you hit this certain whatever it is, the eighth month or ninth month or 10th month phase where you get through that hump and yeah, then you yeah. start getting comfortable. It's like, oh, this is not too bad. <laughs> and it's like thinking about going to the airport and checking in and, you know, doing all those things that we 
mm-hmm. think we like doing, um, it doesn't sound so attractive. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. It, you know, it, I, I think in the end, uh, we'll see. I yeah. mean, maybe by another year of this, everybody will be, oh, forget it. I want to get out and, you know, I'm sick of living in the same city all the time. I, you know, for musicians, we have this, it, it, something we forget too. Sometimes I'll be talking to people and, you know, cities will come up and, and, you know, you've been to most of them, or, you know, whether they're talking about San Diego or Berlin or whatever, you're kind of like, oh yeah, you know, that little restaurant. And you realize, you know, not, no, most people don't travel for a living. Most people see the same city and then just go away on vacations, which is totally normal. It's we're the abnormal ones, you know, who kind of have yeah. this crazy lifestyle and maybe uh, another year of this and I'll be ready to get back out and, you know, see the world again. But yeah, for I now, that, I love it. yeah, I think it, the thing is, once we start and all your friends and people you know are out touring, it's nah, gonna, yeah. that's when it's going to really hit. It's going to be like, oh, darn, I really want to be back out there again. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, I think we'll come around. We're a little ways away yet for uh, to really go full tilt, but uh, we're getting there. It's getting closer. Mm-hmm. So. so Jesse Cook is this great phenomenon, um, super talented uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have a lot of friends uh, over the years who just love uh, going to your concerts and big fans. And you really have this wide range of uh, fans and people come to see you. What's the what's the secret sauce behind that? Do you think <laughs> what, what what really draws people to to come see Jesse Cook in your eyes? Yeah, you know what? I, I don't really know. Um uh, I, I, I feel in some ways I was really lucky that the kind of music that I loved right from the start when I was a little kid just happened to kind of become in vogue, right, as I was sort of, you know, in my early 20s and kind of beginning to really discover my, you know, all my sort of various interests in music were coming together, you know, my arranging and my producing and my engineering and the guitar playing, it all sort of coalesced into this thing just as Flamenco music was sort of finding a world stage uh, because of bands like the Gypsy Kings. Um, And I, you know, my, my own personal history, my dad uh, had just happened to retire to Arles in the South of France where the Gypsy Kings are part of the Gypsy Kings are from. And his neighbor just happened to be Nicholas Reyes of the Gypsy Kings. And it was like this sort of weird conspiracy to sort of get me into this music that, you know, the world was just interested in at a point where my career was ready to, to do that. And, um, and so I feel very lucky, but, uh, having said that the, the world's interest in that kind of music sort of peaked, I'd say, you know, two or three years into my career. And then the rest of it, that's sort of 25 years since then has been really about, um, you know, just building an audience and having, building a show and a rapport with that audience so that they know when you come back, you know, it's going to be a great Roomba party and everybody's going to have fun and end up dancing their butts off and, uh, and, and go crazy until the next time we come back. And that's sort of been what I've been doing for 25 years is just trying to, you know, sort of develop that relationship. And the other thing, I mean, it was a massive seismic shift as, as you probably experienced this too, is, you know, my, I got sort of well known initially through, the kind of the old system, the record industry, you know, I got a record deal yeah. and they, the record company sort of got me out there and publicized what I was doing. And that was the world, right? You know, the, the, the music industry at that time was all music stores and in-store performances and posters and whatever else, and festivals and things. Whereas now, 
I sort of feel like, you know, the, 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 the industry that decides whether or not you become sort of well-known or not is, is probably math. <laughs> it's an algorithm on YouTube. Yeah. You know? And, uh, so now, you know, the, the latest iteration of how I'm trying to sort of find my audience and con- continue to connect with my audience is really, has been YouTube. I've been actually um, uh, making uh, a music video every week by myself. I, you know, oh, I, awesome. I'm social isolation in lockdown. Yeah. I realized um, that it was going to be another year of this. And I sort of thought, well, I need a mountain to climb. I can't just sit here and look out the window. So. Yeah. I, I, you know, every week I, it's crazy. I'm like that guy. I don't know. Did you ever see uh, the TV show Lost? Oh yeah. 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 You know, in the second season, they find some guy down in a bunker with a computer yeah, yeah. And, it, and there's a countdown clock with 24 hours. Yeah. And if he doesn't punch in the code, you know, the, they don't know what's going to happen. They think the island might blow up. So he punches in the code and the clock resets and then he's got to wait there for another 24 hours and punch in the code. That's me. Every week I, I, you know, I upload that video on Friday at noon and then the clock resets and I've got another week to think of a song, record the song, play all the parts, arrange it, mix it, master it, start shooting video, edit the video, color grade the video, upload it to, upload it to all these different formats and then get it by Friday, reset, start again. And I, it's like this crazy thing that has been really fun and really difficult, which is kind of exciting too, because it's, it's nice to have a new challenge at you know 56 and uh, that's that's what i've been doing that's awesome yeah that's and that's hard to do it, it, and it's way more time consuming than people think um oh, yeah. even for my podcast it's you know by the time you say getting it getting it ready getting the the video ready doing the edits and just uploading it to all these formats and and doing all that that takes forever yeah. um and it, it, it surprises me um but the nice thing about it is with, you, with the pressure, the, the pressure of like, you know, once you decide you're going to do something and it's going to be every week, yeah. it takes all of the kind of uh, navel gazing out of the whole process. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have time to sit around and think about, hmm, you know, should I or shouldn't I? You know what I mean? I just, I start recording a song and I know I'm going to try and print it before I go down for dinner. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah, yeah. In the, whereas when I'm making a record, I'll take two years to make a record and I'll be like, mm, I don't know. Let me listen. Let me try with this bass and let me try that part. Maybe we could switch out the verse. Well, you know what I mean? You can just sit there and, you know, give yourself option anxiety. Whereas when you know you want this thing done, it's just go. There's no moment where you can hesitate. If you hesitate, you're going to miss your deadline. And it's kind of fun. Like, I guess it, I don't know. I imagine this is what it's like to do one of those shows like, you know, Saturday Night Live or something where they, every week they have to write a whole show and yeah. then it goes live. I sort of feel like, you know, it's it's not at that level, but I don't have other people to bounce ideas off. It's all you know, just sort of me and me here in the studio doing it. So it's pretty, uh, it's been pretty fun, I have to say. That's cool. So let's talk how your process for doing that uh, mm-hmm. every week. Um, so are you writing any new songs? Or are you just trying to find songs? Or it's a combination of different things. It's mostly because I I um, you know because of the deadline. It's, yeah started off as just, you know, I'll do new versions of old songs, I'll reinterpret, I'll try things where I'm playing all the instruments, there's nobody else in it, uh, or different arrangements, because, you know, at first I didn't have all my instruments, so there was no bass, so I ended up playing surdu and udu and all these drums that have a big bottom end or djembe, anything that could kind of cover that area. Yeah. And, um, and But then 
once I started started doing it more and more regularly, I started, you know, getting my drums out of storage and setting them up and sort of having things ready to go. But um, and then the, there's a few new songs as well. That is part of it. When I it's it's a it's more of a challenge to start writing a new song and know you've yeah. got to finish it. So usually it's one of those things where I go into it and I think, well, we'll just see. it's just something new. Whether it'll become a song on an album, we'll see. But you know, I'll just kind of go along and see if I need to pull the ripcord at some point in the week and jump to a song that I that was already finished, you know. And also, I, I, I've recorded a few extra songs and just mixed them and put them in the can oh, just yeah. in case, you know, for emergency use only, you know, yeah. break glass and all that business. So, but in the meantime, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a real challenge. It's been really fun. So uh, recording on Pro Tools? No, you know what? I, it's funny. I I've always been a Logic Pro guy. Yeah. I actually started with Logic back in ninety two, ninety three, when it was eMagic. It was just yeah. a sequencer. There was no audio. Are, now, is your audience are they are they mostly musicians? Because they're going to be like bored out of their mind with this conversation. I don't want to go, go for it. <laughs> anyway, I started with uh, Logic back when it was just a sequencer, and then little by little, you know, it's become kind of an amazing thing. And then it got bought by Apple, and yeah. you know, I have mixed feelings about it, but it still is a kind of an amazing tool. And I, I mean, you were saying this at the beginning that you know you started with a studio, and then the technology's changed over the years. My company is called Coach House Music because originally my studio was in the coach house behind my house when I used to live a few blocks from here. Nice. And um, and it was time. It was just you know a coach house full of technology. And then little by little, it all got replaced with my laptop, and everything became you know. Now I've got a couple of little outboard gear things that you know I like to tweak with or whatever. But it's really just it's all in the computer and the. In my basement, there's a room that's sort of like the museum of ancient technology that is no longer required, you know, old samplers and synthesizers and things. It's like, why? Why would you bother trying to plug in an old MIDI system with wires and everything? You know, it's all so much simpler now. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's, the other thing, too, that I love is, uh, I, you know, there was a period where I was really leaning heavily on the synths. And I still love synths to some degree, but... But more and more, I'm trying to get back to, you know, just playing everything live and, yeah. and you know, kind of having that organic feel because I, I've gotten to the point where quantized audio is starting to drive me a little bit batty. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. when you listen to the radio after a while, you're, you're like, why do I feel trapped in this music? And you're like, well, it's, there's no breathability, right? Everything is quantized and auto-tuned and to the point where it, it, it just... You know, it all sounds huge and really sort of perfect, but it, it also starts to drive you a little bit around the band. Like, you know, you listen to some old Led Zeppelin groove where they didn't even have a click track or something, and you're like, wow, that's I know. amazing. It, what it, happened? Yeah, it speeds. I was actually just uh, had a podcast a little while ago with Fred Panner, and mm -hmm. uh, we were talking about this where he was saying live, he has a tendency to speed. Um, and his, yeah. and his band members always are after him. And, but I said, but that's lots of times just organic, right? It's, you get to a course and back in the day, mm -hmm. you, you pick an old song, an old album of any kind, there are tempo fluctuations all over the place. Yeah. And, and I said to him, what's the last time you've left a concert and you're walking out and you hear the person next to you kind of go, yeah, that's great. But. He really speeds up in the courses. I mean, people don't notice those unless it's really, you know, insane. Yeah. But uh, I, there's something I've to had, that, right? 
I've had I've had certain band members who sped up to the point where you know we would start the song and be a rumba. By the time we finished, it would be a merengue, and I just you know you can't play certain things. They don't yeah. sound phrases don't work at that tempo. That drives me a bit batty. But otherwise, I agree with you. I think there is a certain kind of tug and pull, and you know if you're if your if your band is really sort of great in that pocket, you know, then you you don't feel it. You know, like we um, often I'll find we'll do live recordings of you know certain songs, and you know I'll, I'll bring cameras on the road and actually just shoot a live version of a song. Yeah. Um, and and I, there's always something about the live version that kills the studio version because it's got this bigness and this energy and there's, it's kind of un, untamed. There's no click anywhere in that, you know? And yeah. Yeah. Something happens. I don't, I don't know what it is, but yeah, you, you want to be able to control the speed yourself, but you don't want the drummer taking off. On his own. Yeah. <laughs> I think honestly, that's what it is. If you have a good drummer, you're fine. You're yeah. in good hands. That's the whole thing. Good drummer, good band. That's the yeah. Then you get those all the time, those drummers who will, who are just complete sticklers on time. Yeah. Yeah. And we're like, no, you're not moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're staying right here. And it's like, oh, yeah, but I want to go a little bit. And he's like, no. I don't like the drummers when they have the little sort of click in their ear. Yeah. You know, and they're going to hold you to it. It's like, no, no, no. If it's, if it's not feeling right. But I, I mean, there's something to be said for it. Like I, there has been a few times where uh, we did sh- big outdoor shows. Uh, shows like in Montreal, we played for 100,000 people or something. And, you know, when you're used to doing a theater that's got whatever it is, 1,500, 2,000 people or something. And then suddenly you're in front of 100,000 people. It's just like this sea of humanity sort of going off to the distance, to the horizon. Yeah. And adrenaline kind of hits you like a wave. And and suddenly, yeah, I'm just playing everything way too fast. And I, you know, at, at that point, you do need somebody to remind us that, you know, just because our hearts are going that fast doesn't yeah. actually make that music sound good at that tempo. It's, yeah, it's no, just... nobody ever slows down. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Fast. Exactly. I like to I like to meet the band that actually slows down when they get going. Exactly. <laughs> so, what made uh, who who actually signed you, and what was the thought behind process of hiring an instrumentalist? Because that's not something that gets done very often um and who who's the one that took the chance on making that happen what it's funny you know actually i um uh, how do i describe this I, I i i did a demo initially which i pitched to sony music canada and yeah. um, somebody i met somebody who said oh yeah i can get something to sony music for you so i did three tunes i think it was tempest cascada and i can't remember what the third one was and they went and they pitched it and i got this letter back saying you know very polite thanks but no thanks and um and but by then i'd already written three songs and i you know i had a studio i was back in my 20s i was a composer and a producer and uh you know i i just did music i was kind of a music mercenary i made music for other people's projects and did whatever was needed so uh i i built my first studio in my mom's basement and it just had sort of grown from there so i always had a place that i could make music it wasn't really fancy but you know i I could do my own thing so i I had these three songs and i thought you know i'm going to just keep going and make an album and see what happens. And a lot of friends at that time were saying, you should really record an album. You know, like your, this music you're doing for other people, it's nice, but your own music has got something a little more heartfelt in it. And, it yeah. should, and also my own music was was sort of more uh, rumba flamenca or flamenco based. And, and, you know, occasionally I would find some 
producer, television producer or a dance choreographer who wanted that, but most people didn't, you know, they, most of them were, they wanted something else. And, um, so anyway, I, I recorded Tempest, my first record. And, and uh, when I finished it, I actually had, luckily I had uh, this woman, Kathleen Shea, help me sort of, you know, put together a little press package and get it out there. And, and miraculously, uh, the, we, I launched it independently and it got on uh, the first day um, CBC Radio's Peter Zofsky, which was this national yeah. program, yeah. Uh, he interviewed me, and then I went right to Global TV and did a second national TV show, all on the first day. Um, and you know, when I first, because it was independent, I'd only had a thousand copies of the CD yeah. printed because I didn't, you know, that seemed like a lot to me, and I didn't have any money for any more. So we did a thousand. Uh, and they were gone in the first week. They were completely sold out across the country. Wow. And, and the distributor was saying, we need more. And I was like, I, I don't have any more money. I can't. So they, they fronted me the money. I, we pressed another 2000. They immediately sold out around the same time. We started getting, uh, interest from several record companies in the States saying, um, you know, we'd love to sign you. And uh, I think Wyndham Hill was interested. Uh, there was another, uh, uh label higher octaves that was very interested. Yeah. And there was this label, Narada, that I'd never even heard of. Uh, and I think they had mostly been doing new age music or something, and they wanted to get into world music. And they wanted to start signing artists like Lila Downs. And, uh, eventually, they ended up um, being bought by, I think, Real World or distributing Real World Records, Peter Gabriel's label. So, but at that time, they, weren't, they were just sort of dipping their toe into world music. And... Um, and I, you know, I didn't know who they were. I didn't really take them seriously when they offered me a record deal. Uh, but they, they were very serious, and they sent, uh, they sent me a couple of plane tickets for me and this woman, Kathleen, to fly down to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, yeah. Weber and Charlie and all that, right? Uh, and the president of the company drove to the airport and picked us up and brought us to the factory and like introduced me to everybody in the entire company and was like, you know, we really, really want you and. And it was one of those things where that night we're flying back to Toronto and, and we're saying, you know, I don't know who those people are, but they seem really committed. And I don't think you can really put that in a deal. You know what I mean? You can't sort of have a contract that they're actually going to care about your project. Yeah. So we signed with them and I'm really glad I did. But they somehow, you know, they pulled all the strings they got. They had, they got me into the Catalina Jazz Festival uh, so right around the first week when it was launched, when the CD was launched. And um and things took off for me at the first concert at the Catalina Jazz Festival. I wasn't even playing on the main stage. I was in a bar downstairs. Oh, yeah. But the place went crazy. And it was kind of, it's on an island off the coast of L.A. And uh, because it's an island, you're not allowed to bring proper cars on. There's only golf carts. Oh, yeah. So everybody's driving around in golf carts. And, you know, the band and I were in golf cart leaving the venue and people were like running, chasing us. It was like the Beatles, <laughs> except only on this little island, you know. Yeah. So it was this crazy thing where we got, and then we got back at the end of that weekend from the Catalina Jazz Festival. My album had debuted at number 14 on the Billboard charts in the U.S. And I was just like, oh. what, what's happened? You know, my life up to that point had been very, you know, sort of behind the scenes. And, and I really did not expect any of this to happen. And it kind of took off and then uh, kind of shot up to this level that was r remarkable. Um, and then from there, as I said, it's just been actually sort of rolling up my sleeves and, and, you know, okay, now we're going to 
start touring in Europe. Okay, now we're going to start touring in Singapore. Okay, we're going to go to Australia. You know, like we got to build this sort of worldwide thing, and it's it's been a lot of work, but uh, it, it's been it's been fun too. That's uh, that's an amazing story, uh, and just probably had to be a bunch of things all firing all at the same time, right? Where it's like. I, I think there was, yeah, I think there was a lot of timing in my favor. Uh, I think I was the right sound at the right time. I yeah. think this label's competitor was higher octave and they had an artist named Otmar Liebert who was, you know, he sounded a bit like the Gypsy Kings and he'd been doing really well. And so this label was like, we want one of those. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there I was. And, uh, you know, I was kind of doing this rumba stuff and they're like, yeah, we love that. And, um, so, you know, it was this, just the right, I, you know, I was, if I'd been three years later, I don't know, or if I'd, if I'd been three years earlier too, maybe nobody would be interested. It was just the timing of really lucky. And, uh, you know, if I was this age back then, you know, would they have been interested in, I don't know. I don't know how that all works. I doubt it. I sort of feel like being 29 and having the right sound at the right time, it all clicked. Yeah. I mean, it all happens for a reason, right? And it's, uh. It's pretty neat. I love hearing that type of story because it's not always the way it is. And um, obviously you've put a lot of work in over the years, but it's nice when, you know, you put something out and you get some action and and it works. I mean, that must have just felt fantastic. And well, it, the crazy thing is, you know, there, a lot of people sort of pay their dues. They'll sit there in little tiny clubs for no audiences for a long time before things really break. Yeah. And somehow I got to bypass that part. Like I, I really played, I played two gigs before I got signed. The first one, I don't think people even realized we were there. We, I don't think they could see us from that place. They were completely <laughs> ignoring us. The second one, uh, I think I told my mother and she invited all her friends. So the place was packed and it, it kind of exploded and the record companies happened to be there that night. So that was really sort of good timing. And they, they saw it and like, oh, this must be really happening. It really wasn't. It was just totally lucky that that night, yeah. you know, everybody showed up. Uh, and then after that, the next gig was the Catalina Jazz Festival. And and then after that, it's just been, you know, theaters and touring. Now, having said that, you know, it, touring, touring the world is never like that. You know, you we'd be in San Diego playing in front of a huge crowd. And then the next day, you're in some town where they've never heard of you and you're loading your own instrument. So it, it always seems like, wow, this is great, but the, the music industry has a way of keeping you humble. You know, that it, I think, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what it's like for a real star, like a Justin Bieber or something like that, but I, you know, at my level, even one day you're playing in a castle in Lebanon and, and the next day you're still schlepping your gear, you know, and so we're trying to slowly work our way to the point where we really never have to carry the gear anywhere. But there's always some part of the world where I feel like we still got to lift that, those, that stuff, you know. Yeah, it feels like the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, it doesn't hurt to do that. Uh, but it's not as fun when you get, it's sort of like, you know, flying in the front of the plane and all of a sudden you got to go to the back. It's, uh, st you still get the job done, but it's not quite as yeah, yeah. nice. <laughs> I know. Well, I to, we don't fly in the front of the plane unless they upgrade me. You know, it's mostly, yeah. I have to say, because those plane trips are expensive. Especially yeah. So, yeah. But we, I actually, we do tour bus. That's mostly what we do. In Is it? Yeah. Tour bus is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't you don't even have to check out of the hotel on a tour bus. You just wake up and you're there. You're at the next venue. It's fantastic. So. Yeah. It's the way to do it. As long as you can kind of keep 
that two are consistent and the show is going one after another. If you got to sit for any length of time um, between shows, it starts getting a little exactly. Costly. No, like, it can be yeah, it can be brutal. Like if you if you're you know sort of sitting in some parking lot somewhere between two cities <laughs> where the bus driver needs to sleep, and yeah. we become the bus refugees, you know, and you're like, oh my god, this is terrible. But uh, you know, again, all that stuff. The longer we tour and the more we have an audience, most places, the more things sort of start to become quite reasonable and comfortable. I think you can tour for a long time as long as, you know, you don't kind of make it too difficult. I think uh, people can lose their minds on the road if if things get too crazy. I remember being young and, and hearing about people touring and I can't remember what group, um, I heard about and gosh, this is, you know, I must've been 12 or 13 and I heard about this band and it's like, did you hear such and such when they go on the road, everyone in the band gets their own hotel room. <laughs> and, and it's like, could you imagine they all get their own room? <laughs> it's sort of like, uh, and I thought well, at a young age, I think that was just ridiculous. How crazy. And now, I mean, I won't, yeah. I won't tour without my own room. <laughs> There's no way that's ever going to happen. Exactly. exactly. I'll turn down the biggest gig if I have to share a room with anybody. It's just like, no. Yeah. No, no, exactly. That's the negotiation spot right there is the hotel yeah. room. So I remember that was a good year. There, uh, I'm trying to remember when that. I think it was around 98, 99 when we finally went, you know what? It doesn't matter whether we're losing or making money on this tour. We need hotel rooms. I was like, oh, this is lovely. You know, just to... You know, it's not. I don't. I don't mind sharing once in a while, but or yeah. I didn't back then. But you, you know, it now that you once you've sort of got to that point where you don't have to share anymore, you're just like, this is the way. It should never go back. It should never go back. <laughs> yeah, you need that space on the road yeah. just to have your own, you know, normalcy. Well, especially if you're on a tour bus, you know, because yeah. the tour bus, yeah, it's like a big floating you know there's whatever there is eight petri dish (laughs) (laughs) i didn't want to say that (laughs) we're all breathing the same air air you know it's uh if one of you gets a cold you all get a cold it's it's, that's why spinal tap was so brilliant i think yeah it was just all a little too close to to true so let's sit back uh even further uh just a little bit of history uh i read you were born in paris france is that correct my uh, so my parents were actually Canadian. I think people often think that I was French or something, but my yeah. parents were Canadian. I, I remember we did a when I went to Russia to do a tour. Uh, they got me a translator to translate into Russian, and it was a French to Russian translator. <laughs> so I had to do my part in French, which is you know a, a weaker language by, by far for me. So, but it was you know I think people they read that on the bio and they think oh my god he's totally French. But it, no, my parents were. Um, my mother was from Montreal. My father was from Toronto. They met uh, at Bishop's University. And after they graduated, they went off to Europe. My dad wanted to live in Paris on the left bank and right, you know, he wanted to be Hemingway, basically. Oh, yeah. And he started, uh, he became a photographer to make a living uh, in Paris. And my mom went initially to London to be a journalist. And then she ended up in Paris with my dad. And my sister and I showed up. Uh, and then things get complicated. There's a lot of moving around and then my parents, uh, split up and eventually my sister, my mom and I came back to Canada when I was about four. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, there was a lot of back and forth to visit my dad. Um, and, uh, and also we had, we had this beautiful house in the South of France that my, my parents had bought for 200 bucks. 
Wow. And, yeah. And it was like parts of it were from the 1600s. Like it's, it was just, you know, it had seven old bread ovens in it, it at different points. Like nuns had lived there. And, you know, it was at one point it had been called Black Death House when the plague came through. You know, it was that kind of thing. <laughs> Crazy amount of history. But it was, yeah, it was beautiful. It was just a beautiful part of, of France. And so we spent, you know, our summers there and stuff. Uh, but otherwise, no, I'm, I'm a Canuck. Awesome. So what, what age did you start uh, picking up the guitar? Uh, my mom says I was three. Oh, wow. Uh, when, uh, or it must have been two because it was Barcelona. I don't remember any of it. Um, yeah. I do remember when we came to Canada, I, got, I was given a little tiny toy, toy guitar um and i loved it and i was constantly like trying to play it and my mom finally met ellie kasner uh who's a sort of famous guitar teacher he was a student of segovia's i think and he had a school a school in toronto she met him at a party and she said what age is a good age to start kids with uh, guitar lessons and and uh ellie kasner said oh as soon as they're interested and my mom said my god you know my kid's been interested forever so I was six at that point. Yeah. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, the people she'd asked before that didn't want to teach me because I guess people thought they, most people didn't think it was worthwhile teaching a little kid. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, luckily, Ellie took me on as a school. And then I, I sort of started with other teachers and worked my way up to being one of his students. And weirdly enough, the one of the first teachers I ever had was a guy named Alan Torak, who himself was a flamenco guitarist. And he uh, he taught me some very basic flamenco forms. And one of the first pieces I learned is, is a Spanish form called Sivianus and, you know, lots of risqueados and things. Yeah. And I just loved it. And it, it, it had already been something that I loved in, you know, from the Barcelona thing. And, and it just kind of continued this weird conspiracy to make a Canadian kid want to play flamenco guitar. So when you're young at that age, what were you listening to music wise? Do you remember what you were interested in? Obviously that style, but did you have any other outside oh, yeah. influences that really made a difference? Totally. No, my, I mean, yes, my, my mom had these Manitas de Platas records that I loved and that he was a, a sort of a rumba style player again from the South France. I think he was actually related somehow to the Gypsy Kings. Um, but my my real love uh, when I was young was the Beatles. And I, you know, we, my parents actually had, this is a great record collection that, that I, I would constantly explore. And uh, there were a lot of great albums in there, but the Beatles were always my favorite uh, sort of, and it's weird too, because I think they split up when I was five or six or something. So I never, you know, I, they were so, the, you know, they, I think the, the Beatles imprinted their music on so many people. And certainly that was the case with me, but they, you know, I, I never knew them when they were still a band. I only see them in documentaries and things. It's, it's funny in a interview, if I ask kind of influences and anytime I bring up that question, it's rare that Beatles don't come up as a main influence to everybody. And it doesn't matter what style of music they play or anything, but it's just remarkable the effect they had not only on their fans, but musicians. It's it's amazing what effect yeah. that band had on on musicians. Just, it's incredible. Well, I think it was also the production. Like, I think it's funny because I, I was having this discussion with my kids. 
the other day, you know, sometimes we'll play this game where we're on a driving, on a road trip or something. And we're like, who do you prefer? The blah, 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 or the blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I think my wife said, so who do you prefer? The Beatles or the Led Zeppelin? And both my kids went, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> what? No, don't get me wrong. I love Led Zeppelin. They're amazing. But, yeah. you know, for me, I, I hear the Beatles everywhere. I hear them on so many different musicians of different generations. I hear them in Bruno Mars. I heard them in Lenny Kravitz. I heard them in ELO. Like whatever, whatever, pick me a decade and I'll show you musicians who are ripping off the Beatles or, you know, borrowing, being inspired by the Beatles. And I started thinking, Led Zeppelin, you know, yeah, I, there's definitely people who are influenced. Uh, Aerosmith, I guess. You know, there are some that I don't hear. It's not the same where I just, I, I don't hear it everywhere. I sort of feel like there are people who came out of Led Zeppelin, but they're really playing that style of music. Whereas the Beatles, I feel like, you know, I, I won't lie. I, I've stolen, like, you know, the end of the day, <laughs> a day in the life, you know, that big oh, yeah. sort of uh, Stockhausen orchestral swell with a boom. You know, I, I did that on one of my tunes, you know, and I do Rumba Flamenca. So, you know, if I can, if I can borrow them, that's really sort of crossing different types of genres, right? Like they, there's something really special about this. Yeah, you wonder if they didn't exist, what music would have been, because it's almost that they were that influential that yeah. you wonder, you know, if you could go back in time and they didn't exist, where we'd be now with music. It'd be interesting to. Yeah, that would be yep. an interesting experiment to know because it, it, they're so influential. It's just it's it's really really crazy. crazy, but great. I mean, it's just amazing to have that type of yeah. you know worldwide influence. That's yeah. pretty amazing. But the the other big influence on me was obviously Al Damiola and uh, Paco Lucia and John McLaughlin. Those three guys. Yeah, had a live record called Friday Night in San Francisco, and then that's as a player, and then as a producer, Peter Gabriel. Oh yeah. In terms of what I actually do for a living, Peter Gabriel probably had the biggest impress, made the biggest impression on me because he embraced world music in a way that Western musicians hadn't really done up to that point. So he was kind of the, you know, he was the artist that connected me to music from the rest of the world. You know I mean? Like, you know, that music always existed, but I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have found out about it if it hadn't been for, you know, this British guy yeah. flying the National Canadian Dance Company up to his studio and recording it for the end of one of his pop tunes, you know, and, uh, I remember just thinking that's the craziest, most amazing thing I'd ever heard. And so as soon as I start making records, you know, well, I think I'm going to get a Brazilian percussion ensemble with 40 people pounding on drums and, you know, do that. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, that was what, what Peter Gabriel did. It's funny, as I find as time goes by, I see less and less of the effect. I mean, I hear, I, I actually hear his work more in film scores and things. I'll say, yeah. oh, that's the Passion soundtrack being ripped off right there, you know. But I, I don't see his work being sort of translating into other pop music as, as yeah. time goes by. It's sort of, it's fine. I mean, that's whatever. It's Music is music. It should go where it's going to go. But it's interesting what, what endures and what doesn't. When you uh, look at doing uh, an, an album now, or even when you first started and you finished the first album going through, what's, what's your train of thought and, and putting together an album? And, and, and as far as, and I should know this, but have you produced all your albums or have you looked at other, other producers or how do you handle that situation? Um, you know what? I think perhaps my weakness um, as an artist is that I'm, I've always done things by myself. You know, I started recording in my mom's basement by myself and, and 
and I just got so comfortable, you know, learning each part of the craft and never having to explain myself, you know, never having to try and con explain to somebody else what you want, you just do it yourself, that I sort of feel like sometimes my work has suffered as a result. You know what I mean? That I, if I, if I had uh, worked with other producers or, you know, let other people engineer more of my records, maybe they would have sounded better. Maybe more interesting other influences would have worked their way into my music. Um, they, one of the few experiences I had working with other producers was um, there was a group in Britain called uh, Afro-Celt Sound System. They were kind of a Peter Gabriel super group. They came out of Real World Records and, and I loved their work. And uh, I think when Virgin bought Narada, the company I was with, suddenly there was this sort of sharing going on between us and Real World. And, and so I reached out to those guys and they said, yeah, why don't you play on our record? We'll, play, we'll produce a couple of tracks with you. And, and I ended up going to London and spending a, a few weeks there and working with those guys, actually in Led Zeppelin's old studio. Oh, cool. On Britannia Row, yeah. Uh, and, um, and I, you know, I loved it. It was a great experience and I learned a lot from doing it. Um, but, you know, in general, I've just produced my own records. Now, in terms of my process, I try to change my process um, because I find if you keep putting yourself in the same, through the same paces, you end up with the same result each time. Yeah. So I try to throw the wrench in the works from time to time and just go, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go up to, one year I did an album called The Blue Guitar Sessions where I just went up to the cottage with a guitar and a microphone and I just wrote nothing but two guitar pieces. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wrote, said every morning I'm going to write a piece and I'm not going to let myself do anything until that piece is written. Yeah. And then if I write it, as soon as it's done, I can do whatever I want for the rest of the day. And by the end of that summer, I came back and I had all this, lots of different material. And then I sort of developed those, fleshed them out into sort of full arrangements. Um, other times it'll be, you know, I'll be working with loops. Like I got into uh, looping for a while or, you know, I, I was really into trap music for a bit. And you oh, just yeah. sort of go, okay, what am, what's what's exciting me? And let me learn a little bit about that and see what I can do with it. And, um, you know, and right now this YouTube thing is sort of requiring me to, or seems to have led me to this place where I'm playing all the parts on acoustic instruments and using surdus as my bass and whatever. And that sort of, it's kind of exciting because it, I realize there's something a little bit trap music-like about having a big drum be your bass anyway, right? You know, if you're, for people who know about TR-808s, you know, and how like mm -hmm. basically kick drum has become the bass sound of preference in modern pop music. Yeah. You sort of go, oh, well, the Surdu was kind of the original TR-808. And, and that one, you get to actually really whack it. And, you, know, give it you can give it sort of intensity. Yeah. So that's, I've been doing that lately and loving it and just seeing where that gets me. Um, I don't, yeah. Do you approach uh, when you start recording... Um, <laughs> Do you like to lay down some form of the rhythm, uh, bass, uh, or do you like to playing your guitar part and then building around that? Sadly, too often I actually will record the the you know the the rest of the music, kind of create the groove or whatever, yeah. and then I'll start writing. And I always feel like the music doesn't come out as well that way. That somehow I always feel like I'm trying to impose a melody onto something that already is interesting in in, in its own right yeah. you know that if you start by trying to create this really interesting and groovy thing and then you put a melody on it sometimes it it's not fitting just right whereas 
if you start with a melody and you build everything around it, you're, you know, the melody becomes the most important element and everything else is there to support it. There's this more organic chemistry to it somehow. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I sort of say this in hindsight, but there are, there are many tunes that have started sort of to be probably just out of sheer laziness that I'm sort of sit down and I'm going to work on my, work on, create this great groove because I love a great groove, right? Oh yeah. And, and I keep going, I'll get to the melody later. And before I know it, the things become something big. And now I go in there with the guitar and I'm like, oh, there's no space for a melody anymore, you know? Whereas uh, when I do sort of sit down and play the instrument, I actually, the only instrument I really know how to play uh, it tends to come out a little better. Yeah, because I guess you would probably, when you've got something big around you, you'd probably really have to simplify your melody because there isn't the space for it. Um, yeah, find, well, and, and the doesn't mean that won't that, be good, but but I think I mean you. It sounds like you produce and yeah. you change, and you know that um, often is the more you add the smaller everything becomes, you know what I mean? You think it's going to keep getting bigger, but in fact, it's just each part becomes smaller sound because it's all fighting for the same space. And, um, and, uh, and so the, when the melody is not there, you're often filling space that the melody is going to occupy. You know what I mean? You're, you, you want that note to be right in the middle of everything and everything else is built around create, you know, supporting it. I'm trying to think of an analogy. There must be some architectural analogy where, you know, you built a house and you didn't think about the bathroom, you know, the kitchen or what were you thinking? You know, just trying to fit it in afterwards. And yeah. I, I'm not, that's not a good analogy, but there we go. <laughs> no, I understand. I was mixing in a project, uh, a couple songs for a, a client and they sent me uh, these songs and it was just loaded full of stuff. Um, yeah. And I ended up stripping half of everything they recorded out and, it just sounds better and better. Yeah, I sent it to them. I'm thinking, oh, God, they're going to really not like me pulling all yeah. this stuff out. And their first uh, comment about the mix is this, it sounds huge. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, yeah, I took out half the stuff. Um, it Just exactly for what you said, it you just get this ball of noise. And, mm. and I find a lot of music today is that. It's just lots of stuff all happening and they're just either pulling chunks out of it for a verse section and just uh, turning it back on for the chorus section. And, yeah. and it's like, you never hear like little nice licks or, or, you yeah. know, parts anymore. It's just a wall uh, yeah. with a melody. And uh, sometimes too, I find uh, I've heard bands will do an arrangement where everybody, all the musicians are playing all the time because when you're in a band, you want to have something to do. You don't want to sort of sit there and do nothing and twiddle your thumbs for the chorus or the pre-chorus or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, you know, the net result is it, it sounds like the arrangement was on your mark, it's it, go. And they all went, you know what I mean? That there's no, there's no little quiet, intimate moments, like huge choruses where everybody comes in and rocks it, you know what I mean? And I sort of feel like that, that is kind of why you need to have an arranger, you know, somebody who sort of does does what you do and sort of makes the difficult choices. And maybe they probably loved you for it because as a band, maybe they, you know, they couldn't say, hey, listen, can you sit out? But I mean, if somebody else outside the band comes along and goes, you know what, it sounds better if I'm going to do this and we're not going to discuss it. And once you hear the result, everybody's like, well, the result sounds great. So we're, we're totally happy with it. You know, I, uh, I mean, I think that's that is what a good producer does anyways. Half of it is... Uh, yeah, it's uh, like being democratic, being diplomatic, I think is the word. Yeah, yeah they're like 
producer should also be producer slash manager of the session you know because that's what ends up being you you're you're managing this group of guys and putting them together and hopefully if you pick the right guys you don't have to do a lot of producing um yeah you know that's that's part of the trick is knowing who to get and and then your job becomes a little bit easier so um, you know years ago i um i I worked with uh al schmidt one of the sort of great engineers of all time one more Grammys, I think, than just about anybody, 21 Grammys or something. Um, and I worked with him because um, I was still, I still had a record deal and I still actually had a budget that was being given to me by a record company to make a record. And I thought, this isn't going to last much longer, the way the world is going and, you know, downloading and all that. So uh, while somebody else is paying the bill, I should actually go and take the opportunity to mix with one of these legends. So I I uh, called up Al Schmidt and I was kind of amazed to discover that he was pretty much the same price as hiring an engineer anywhere in your local town, you know, with a, you know, main room of a big studio or whatever. And and he was in the Capitol building, you know, that circular building in Los Angeles that the aliens always blow up in the movies. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And, and I, I remember it was so, um, it was such a learning experience for me realizing how simplistic how you know he he had this philosophy and he stuck to it and his philosophy was he's like well you know we we have the best musicians in the world and playing the best instruments in the world and are being recorded by the best mics in the world i just try to get out of the way and not mess it up you know what i mean and i sort of thought that's there's something to that so he doesn't use eq he doesn't use compression i he mixes on um, he mixed on a on a digital Neve. Yeah. And uh, I took a picture of it because on that Neve, if you put the EQ on, a little light comes on to say the EQ is engaged. Yeah. And I took a picture of the console at the end of my mix because none of the lights were on. Like he, all he's using is the faders. And he, he'll basically the things that Al Schmidt sort of works on are the things you really hear, right? Like the things that not a trained musician hears. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you, the first time you heard compression, somebody had to explain to you what was going on because you're like, it sounds different, but I'm not sure how. You know what I mean? Yeah. He doesn't use compression. He doesn't. He just you automation. He, he move. You know, he uses volume. Yeah. He's, you can tell if it needs. If it's too quiet, you can't hear it. I turn it up. You know what I mean? He uses reverbs like crazy. He, oh, yeah. You know, you, we all can hear reverb. Oh, that sounds like echo. You know. So the things that we really are aware of, he really works those things. The things that only sort of trained engineers know about, right? Uh, EQ and compression, which, you know, I don't know about you, but me, I couldn't imagine trying to build a mix without those, without EQ and compression. It's like trying to build a house without a saw and a hammer or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And yet he had these incredible mixes in three hours. Like I, I'm talking about, a, a, you know, a 90 channel mix with an orchestra and percussion and, bass and like just all sorts of crazy stuff sounding amazing in three hours or less like i i think the first day he opened up a session i got a call from him saying you know hey this is your, you know i was in toronto at that point later i the same day i ended up flying out because i was like why am i in toronto i should go and be beside him and watch yeah. him do it so the first day i'm in toronto and i get this call and he says uh like yeah i'm just opening up your mix is there anything special you know and i was like uh no do you know do be be Al Schmidt. Do do what Al Schmidt does, you know. And yeah. Go, okay. So I get a call in an hour, and I'm thinking it's going to be, uh oh, something's wrong, right? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I got a mix. You want to hear it? <laughs> in an hour. 
<laughs> I, which for you and I is hilarious. For most people at home, maybe they think that's normal. Like an hour, most engineers are still working on the kick sound or something after an hour. Do you know what I mean? Like bussing in something, you know, their distressor or something. Hal Schmidt, he had the whole thing up. And I was kind of like, what? And I, it was huge, but I realized there's no compression on anything. And that's part of why it's so big. Like yeah. there was nothing, you know, Squash I mean, that, I, yeah. yeah, I was like, I was, I'm not sure. I'm not used to hearing my guitar with no compression. He's like, oh, I, I'll put some compression on it. So he, he puts it through a summit, right? Which oh, yeah. again, to you and I is kind of funny. The good summits aren't normally for, engin- for uh, mastering engineers. Or something. Yeah. So he puts it through a summit and immediately it gets smaller. Mm-hmm. Which normally I'm not aware of because normally there's lots of compression in my mixes and yeah, only else when is, there's no yeah. compression and something you suddenly go oh wow it got smaller it's not as kind of open and glassy sounding yeah anyway I I can hear the people just completely being bored out of the tree since <laughs> you know what I'm talking about I would discuss this you can cut it out later people googling compression uh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care will he stop talking about that. <laughs> That's pretty awesome, though. Uh, what an experience! Um, I, it, it speaks volumes, right? I mean, and everyone has their their thing, right? It, it's been neat with this time off. There are a lot of big engineers now sitting and shooting videos and a lot of different things of their mixes and yeah, spending yeah, a lot yeah. more time. And I've watched a few, and they're fascinating. Um, yeah. Just watching their process, and you realize it's not rocket science right it's just they have a process um and they like you said they stick to it this is the way they they do it this is how they have their sound and bam it's it's done um there's a i'm trying to remember that it's i think it's puremix.com or one of those companies that uh, you can kind of go on and watch other guys um mix and they have this song uh they've sent to gosh maybe about eight different engineers now the song called lifeboats and I keep mm-hmm. hopping on every once in a while and they have a series, um, you know, it could be four or five hours of them completely sitting there doing the mix and talking about everything they're doing and every single plugin they're using on that. Yeah. So you can go to the series and I just usually jump to the end and listen to the final product and go to the next one, listen to the final product, go to the next one, listen to the final product. And it's massively different between yeah. each person. Yeah. And these are all top, top guys. And it's interesting because it's, None of them are wrong. No. Um, and they're all great mixes, but they're just them, yeah. right? It's it's funny how it, it's, I mean, I think because you're an engineer, you realize how important a good mix is. And because I engineered most of my own records, I feel the same way. And I think most people don't even realize it. They just take it for granted that it's going to sound huge, <laughs> you know, that all records sound huge, but it's hard, you, you know. Most most records don't see the light of day because they don't sound huge, and yeah. uh, and I sort of feel like engineers are really unsung heroes. I mean, they they what they're doing they're almost like the orchestra conductor. They are doing something that really takes a huge understanding of music and sound and electronics, and you're really it's almost like alchemy. You're bringing it together. You're making magic out of all of this stuff, and uh, and I sort of feel like we don't often recognize just how good like a, a great engineer is, how, how important that is to the whole process and, and why you love that song, you know what I mean? Why you turn it up in your car or whatever, because it just sounds like amazing coming out of your speakers. But I'll tell you one more Al Schmidt story, and you can cut it out if you want. Um, but uh, I remember, uh, again, we, I was now I'm in L.A. sitting beside him because I realized I just wanted to see how he did what he did. And, and I 
and he's telling me stories about how he um, he was asked to mix the Melody Girl record. Uh, is that how you pronounce her name? Gordo Melody Girl. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, she, uh, I guess that she'd sent, she'd done her album and sent it off, and it got mixed by somebody. And as soon as she heard it, she burst into tears. She, she was like, it didn't recognize the sound of her music, and. So the record company goes, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get Al, you know. So they send the same mix off to Al, and he opens up the Pro Tools session, and you know he he make he did he did his Al thing, and he mixed it and immediately. She's like, you know, oh my God, it's fantastic, it's beautiful, you've saved me, and and I said, what did you do? And he said, well, I I just clicked on the the plugins and removed them one by one. And every time I removed a plugin, it was like removing gauze from the music. And eventually it just all sounded good again. You know, and you sort of think it's, you know, that's, but you have to hear it that way, yeah. you know, and, and he did, he somehow was able to make things sound bigger without all these things that we normally use to make things sound bigger. And uh, that's, that's the magic about. Yeah. And I mean, there's times where, you know, plugins and those type of things kind of save your life. Um, and then there's times where you go through and you find yourself buried down a hole and just not getting where you want to get. And you just pull all that stuff away. And all of a sudden it's like your life comes back to you again. It's like, oh, yeah. I went down the oh. rabbit hole way too yeah. far. Exactly. Yeah. I think we, t- we started talking about um, doing these things within a week. And I think part of what I've really enjoyed about this is that because I know I also have to shoot a video. I won't allow myself to engineer a song for, for a day, for two days or three days as I used to. And what happens is the first thing you lose when you're mixing for three days is perspective. You yeah. you don't ever get to hear that music for the first time. You don't get to walk in and hear your song fresh and go, oh, this sounds great or muffled or giant or the bass is too loud or whatever. You never have that. You As you go down the rabbit hole, you the first thing you lose is perspective. Yeah. Um, and when you have to do it fast, you always think, oh, there are compromises being made. But sometimes that urgency forces you to make decisions while you still actually are in a pretty good state to make those decisions. You know, you still have this sort of clarity of vision because you're, you're still hearing it relatively early on in the process yourself. So that's, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about, about this, what I've been doing you know, this year during COVID. Awesome. Well, super impressive that, uh, you know, you've, you've engineered all your albums and done all that. I didn't know you, did that part of it so that's uh uh really impressive um work and and you know it's nice that you you're able to do that i mean i think having that as all one package be able to produce engineer and play and deliver great products it's got to make you feel really great about what you've done right it's you've you felt you're, you're in control uh you deliver something that people really like and you've done it yourself. It's it's authentically you, right? Yeah, it's well. That is it. It's it's very especially if you play all you know most of the instruments on most of the tracks. You know, occasionally I'll I'll, I'll start by recording everything, and then I'll re- invite a musician who really plays that instrument occasionally to come and replace it. But only if you know if it's something that didn't sound quite right already, you know, or if it's violin or something that requires you know a level of virtuosity I'll never have. Um, but uh, as I said, you know, sometimes you sort of wonder, well, what would it have sounded like if I had, you know, a George Martin at my side or whatever, you know. And, um, and, and then the other thing is, you know, in the last few years, that other career has become making 
the, the sort of video aspect of things and editing and color grading. And for me, color grading is as difficult as engineering. And it's, yeah. it's a whole, at 56 to sort of be deep into this other very complicated thing that you're like, oh, I need to learn more about it. Um, you know, and it's not, it's not just this, this, these YouTube videos and whatever. I, uh, I actually filmed and directed my own PBS special and it ended up being aired on TV and I've done most of my music videos, uh, certainly everything from the last 10 years onward. So it's, you know, it's something where it's a, it's another art form that is completely different from music, but because it's a music video there is there's a an, an element of music that's running through all of it and it and i find when i'm editing the music i'm i'm editing i feel like i'm editing it as a musician would you know that yeah. you know we know as musicians oh yeah this is the drum fill and that's a, that little bass thing and, and so you 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 want to capture all those moments in your edit and i remember when i was used to do music videos when other people would do the music videos for me i'd always be feeling like they're missing, like the, they're not connecting to what's happening in the music because I think, I, you know, I learned later and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I, I remember realizing that sometimes there are some people who listen to music and they're just feeling it with their heart. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not thinking, oh, this is the violin solo or whatever. They're yeah. just kind of going, oh, I feel so, you know, and, and they're not at all thinking about what instrument's doing what and what's creating the groove or any of those things that we just immediately think about because we're listening, you know, because we've spent a lifetime doing this, right? Yeah. And so I sort of feel like when you're a musician and you edit your own videos and you record your own videos and all that stuff, it actually, you do make a, a video that looks quite different from somebody who's not a musician. And I, so I, I, you know, it's, again, I would probably be way better if I got Martin Scorsese, but <laughs> no, I, I'm sure my problem, I yeah. need to record everything myself and enjoy it. So there we go. It, it's always like an analogy I always use. If it's, it's like having a lighting guy, uh, for a live show, who's not a musician. And, yeah. and yeah, it's yeah. just like, you look at, uh, I don't know how many tours I've gone out and I'll be sitting there and, you know, a lot of time I'll be in a producing role of the show or something. And I'll be like using the house guy. And eventually I just kind of like, what yeah. in the world are you doing? Yeah. Your I mean, bass solo and the guy's in total darkness and yeah. the lights on something else. You're like, what? Him, that guy, let's look at him. He's playing a solo for you, you know? Yeah. Or they just randomly move lights yeah. that has nothing to do with anything with the music yeah, or, yeah. or anything. It's just all of a sudden we're just sitting there and like, oh, you know, hit the button, do something different yeah, just yeah. in random times. And uh, I remember once uh, doing this show and this lighting guy in between songs while the artist was talking, we all of a sudden, you know, have a look. All of a sudden, I'm like, <laughs> and all of a sudden, would, everything would move, right? And I'm sitting there going, okay, well, maybe he just made a mistake. Yeah. And, uh, and sure enough, the next song, same thing. Uh, okay and then the third song after they're talking and he did some big thing yeah. and I finally looked over and said, if you do that ever again <laughs> i'm gonna you know and it was like and he just looked at me and it was like it's like what and i was like how could wow okay and then he stopped no, but, I think, <laughs> but i i think that's you know that's the lighting guy going look at me look yeah. at my lights aren't they beautiful you know he's not thinking about you know, sort of trying to make the music more enhanced to what's happening on stage. He's just trying to, you know, do something that he likes, which is lighting, right? Like, I always feel that 
you know, all, there are many artists do that. We all probably do it in our own way where we, mm -hmm. you know, we, we want to be, we want to shine. We want, but there are times where you sort of, you feel as an artist, the best way to help the project is to, is to be supportive, you know, is to kind of figure out what, you know, what can you do to make what's really, what people are focusing on, whether it's the vocal, the lead, whatever, you know, you, you want to enhance that yeah. and give everything that you're doing to that moment. Uh, and I guess that's what makes the great lighting guys too, is that they understand that, right? They're there to enhance the music, not, you're, the music's not there to enhance their lights. <laughs> do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's funny when you, you mention color grading, um, mm -hmm. that, yeah, I, I've, for me, that's like mixing audio is that everyone yeah. could sit behind and do it and it's going to look different for yeah. every single person who does it. And whenever I do anything like that, I'm always, I second guess myself so much and said, I, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing, if it's technically right. But then I have to tell myself, does it look good to you? Yeah. And if it looks good to you, then that's what you want. Um, yeah. You know, still same thing. I, I mix, I'm sure I'm doing stuff wrong. You know, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there's probably a better way to do this yeah. even after 30 years, but you know what, it's the way I do it. And, right. it, and it gets me to the finish line and it still works. So if there's no, you know, rules that you're going to get arrested because, you know, oh. you the kick drum this way. So it's interesting. I mean, music is funny that way too. The, or the other thing is I've heard songs where, uh, you know, I'll hear it and I'll think that is a terrible mix. Like that mix is awful. I can't believe, you know, listen to that kick drum sound, whatever. But you realize that the song itself really touches you in a certain way. And you realize that in some ways that that kind of very ambient sounding, natural sounding mix, in fact, gives the whole thing an air of authenticity. And maybe that's part of its magic, right? Is that it's not in any way trying to impress you. It's, it's kind of warts and all like, it, you know, I, I don't want to say Neil Young is an example of that because that's not what I'm thinking of, but it, maybe it's that thing, you know, that, you know, three chords and the truth approach to music that at the end of the day it's whatever touches you that's important yeah. is the thing that actually sort of somehow gets past your defenses and makes you feel something uh and however they arrive at that is fair game cool well let's wrap up on uh a couple questions here i'd like to ask uh my guests uh especially you know, your guitar player obviously uh this one's specifically for you if you had to leave the house for quick reason say i don't know if it's on fire or something. and you had you had to take or you had time just to take one instrument which one would it be uh forever i think if i had to leave in my desert island thing would be that that guitar over there the conde hermanos is uh the great is the sort of stradivarius of flamenco guitars yeah uh, um and yeah that's if i only had to play one guitar the rest of my life that that would be it Where'd and, where'd you find that one I bought it in Madrid. I actually spent a week in Madrid going to all the great luthiers. Um, and it, it's funny, it wasn't their best guitar. You know, their best guitar was this other thing, right? Yeah. And uh, Brazilian rosewood back inside, and this one had Indian rosewood back inside. But I played it and it just sounded like tobacco or coffee. It had this incredible like rah, sound and I was like, oh my God. And um, and again, this is not like, it's not like a Gibson. They don't make them in the factory. These, yeah. these are handmade guitars made one at a time and they sell for a crazy amount of money. And, uh, and you're there with the luthier trying it in his little shop in Madrid. And uh, I kept going back and trying the guitars and whatever. And, 
And finally he said, do you want to hear somebody else play the guitar so you can be on the other, other side of it? And I said, yeah, yeah, that would be great. And he goes, hang on a second. And he calls his nephew, right? And his nephew comes in and he sits down and he plays. And it's just like insanely good little 13-year-old kid playing this guitar. And I was like, oh, my God, what the hell? You know, and, 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 and uh, turns out the kid was Javier Conde, who's since become a world-famous guitarist, right? But uh, anyway, the... Um, at the after Javier Conde played, I said to the kid, I was like, "Which guitar do you prefer, uh, this one or that one?" And and he said, "Oh, I prefer this one, the same one I'd preferred." And his, you know, his his father said, "Yes, but that's the better one." And then the kid goes, uh, "Yes, but that's the better one." But I prefer this one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's one of those things, you know. They come out the luck of the draw. It just it yeah. just had a certain sound, and yeah, it's it's the one I've done most of my records with. So. Awesome. Um, Another question for you, you obviously you've played all over the world and many, many venues. Is there a place out there, a venue out there or a city or a country even that you've never played that you've always wanted to? There are tons of places I've always wanted to play and I've never played. Uh, I have yet to play in Brazil. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it's, Brazilian music has been a fair um, part of the music that I do. Uh, I've never paid, played in India and I've actually, I had a, a song of mine, Mario Takes a Walk, become a huge hit in India, not as Mario Takes a Walk, it became this Bollywood theme song to, you know, uh, a, a series of movies called Doom, wow. which is kind of like Mission Impossible. There's like, they're, I think they're on Doom 7 now or something, right? Like yeah. it's just hugely successful franchise and the main song doom doom it was my song where it takes a walk so i i've always wanted to go there and play but it just you know i haven't got there yet so it, someday we'll, we'll go and see what happens cool that's awesome yeah. and uh well last one we'll wind up on this one because it's always a favorite of mine and uh it's spinning off to another podcast i'm starting but it's uh <laughs> we all know that when we go on on tour the show is a great part but it's it's what we really want to do is go to that great restaurant when we're done the show. Uh, And uh, do you have a, a favorite one uh, that pops out to you that in your travels that, yeah, this is like, this was really epic. You know what? Um, There were two meals that over the years have just stayed with me. One was in Lebanon. We played uh, in this castle overlooking the ocean. The stadium kind of went out over the ocean and the castle's on the shore. Uh, and be- between soundcheck and show, those promoters walked us up the hill, up into this little village. And they had this insanely good meal, like crazy good meal. You know, the kind of thing where you're, you're, the tables are lowered and you s- oh, yeah. walk down and sit down and there's fires inside the table and the food is sort of being cooked in front of you. And I just remember it was orgasmic. And I, all this time later, I just want to somehow get back there and order another meal. I don't know how, how that would work, but it was so good. So good. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Those are always, those conversations usually come up more than the gigs themselves or the food, that you <laughs> have, which is great. Well, how is the best way or what's the best way for people to stay in touch? Uh, obviously you've got, uh, the YouTube thing going on, which is really, yeah. Great. So go to my YouTube channel, Jesse cook, uh, the, the series is called Love in the Time of COVID, but, you know, just search me and you'll probably find me. Otherwise, uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Occasionally, I'll tweet, but I'm really not much of a tweeter, I have to admit. Yeah. 
and, and yeah, otherwise jessicook.com and that's about it, I guess. Awesome. Well, it's been a really awesome conversation. I really, really Thank enjoyed you. it. Yeah, and me too. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, stay on in a second. We'll say a proper goodbye, but thanks again. And uh, we'll catch up. I, I can't wait to, uh, we're all playing again and we can uh, <laughs> come out and see uh, a concert. And uh, I'm sure yeah, you'll yeah. be out on the road uh, sooner than later. So that would be nice. Yeah. yeah. Thanks Very again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, <laughs>